In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Easter season is a gradual unfolding of the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead, and that the world will never be the same. On Easter morning, we encountered the empty tomb and the shock and surprise of the whole thing. Last week, Father James preached about that liminal space between the resurrection itself and getting to experience and understand its effects. We're still in that liminal space, but this morning, we start to get the so what of the resurrection. I want to focus on what a response to the resurrection looks like. Now, I'm not known for the classic three-point sermon, but if you'll oblige me, I do have three big ideas that I want to cover this morning. The first is this, that the, the good news of the resurrection prompts repentance. We heard at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when he finishes, his listeners ask him, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replies this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Easy enough. Sermon finished. Who needs two more points? But let's back up for a moment. The excerpt that we read from Acts chapter 2 this morning is just a small piece of Peter's Pentecost sermon. And if you read the whole thing, Peter doesn't just talk about Holy Week, that is, Jesus' death and resurrection, but about Jesus' life and ministry and identity as Israel's Messiah. Now, there's a message that Jesus and all the prophets have in common, and it could be summarized to sound a little bit something like this. You're heading off a cliff, you're careening towards your own destruction, and I've been sent by God to warn you. This is sort of common to all the prophets. But prophets often spoke to ears that were unwilling to hear. Their listeners regularly refused to heed their message, continuing full speed on the pathways of self-destruction. But unlike the other prophets, Jesus stood in between us and the cliff ahead. He did so so that we, and as Peter puts it, those who are far off and those who are near, could be able to grab hold of him and be saved from ourselves and from our sin. And the point isn't just to get right with God now. It's much more than helping us to avoid falling off this one particular cliff we're speeding towards so that we can live happily ever after lives. Now, of course, when we repent and are baptized, we receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. Conversion is a significant moment in our story, but it isn't the final act. Peter and the other apostles had a lot of story left after their conversions. And as we see throughout the New Testament, Baptism didn't confer upon the followers of Jesus sudden perfection so that they could do the mission of the church. James K.A. Smith, in his book On the Road with St. Augustine, from which I'll be quoting a few times today, he summarizes Augustine's thoughts this way. Conversion isn't the arrival at a final destination. It's the acquisition of a compass. Everyone will have a first response to the gospel, But those who are already united to Christ are the people who continue to respond to it, repenting and turning away from sin towards Christ again and again. Here again from Smith, conversion doesn't pluck you off the road, it just changes how you travel. But turning to Jesus can be hard, especially when we're hurt. It doesn't become simple and easy after our first turning. I think about the travelers on the road to Emmaus who almost miss Jesus in front of them. At first, they don't have eyes to see him. Their eyes are are kept from understanding who he was, maybe because of how greatly they ached. 
When they're explaining to Jesus what happened, they say, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Ruth Haley Barton, in her work on the Emmaus Road as a metaphor for the spiritual life, reflects a great deal on we had hoped, bringing our disappointment to Jesus, bringing that situation where everything is very different from what we expected and putting it in front of our Lord. And yet, even in that hurt, these two people on the road to Emmaus welcome this stranger to speak with them on the road. Sometimes turning to Jesus starts with an openness to receive him, even when you aren't ready. We typically think of repentance in grand terms, big public displays. But maybe some days, turning towards God starts with that openness to let Jesus walk with you in your grief and pain, allowing him to step into your disappointment. We often tell our boys, by which I mean we often have to tell ourselves, that you're always allowed to feel however you want, but what you do with those feelings matters. If you can't yet give up hurt or pain or anger, you can start by just letting Jesus draw near, letting Jesus in to minister to us in whatever situation we find ourselves can be that first step to help us turn away from ourselves and towards him, opening up just enough to let him draw us closer. So there's this response we all have to make to Jesus, repentance. And true as that may be, my next two points will give what I think is some helpful context. So the second is this, we repent as individuals in our own individual story but our story is only a tiny piece of a much larger story. Jesus' death and resurrection is the grand act in the story. N.T. Wright lays out the grand biblical narrative as having these five acts, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and then the church. When we read the Gospels, they frequently call back and remind us of this larger story, of Israel, of God's people, and of what God has been doing for centuries to use these people for the redemption of all of humanity created good but marred by sin. Jesus then is the next big moment in that story. This is why Jesus explains to those two disciples on the road not just what he had already told them about his death and resurrection, but explains all through Moses and the prophets about the things concerning himself. The gospels ripped out of their context are not the gospels. They are not the good news. The good news is a piece of a much bigger act, a much bigger story. And it's into that story that we turn away from our sin and ourselves and are baptized. We, as human beings, have this incredible capacity to insist that each of our individual stories are epic tales and we are the heroic protagonist. I once heard a comedian describe it this way. We deeply want to believe that we're all Denzel Washington of our movies. But we aren't Denzel. We're not the man on fire. We are mostly just extras. All joking about ourselves aside, this is an important corrective. That as Christians, we belong to a greater, grander narrative, which isn't about any of our individual achievements or lack thereof. Years ago, as I went through a really difficult season of doubt, one of the things that kept the fire of faith burning within me was that little phrase we say at the end when we read a psalm. Who was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. My own existential crisis was simply that, my own. And not to diminish that struggle or any struggle that you might be having. The reality is that God has been in the business of redeeming the world even before the world needed redemption. And he's doing it now and will continue to do so no matter what goes on in any individual story. 
There's a saying that I hear sometimes in youth ministry circles that's kind of a play on a Ronald Reagan quote, that the church is only one generation away from extinction. The phrase is meant to be a motivator for investing in the next generation of Christians. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm usually all about guilting people into caring about youth and children's ministry. But as well-intentioned as that phrase might be, if you believe in a God whose plan for the world might fail because we didn't try hard enough or care about things the right way, I don't know who you're worshiping, but it's not the God of the Bible. That isn't to say our efforts are meaningless. Of course they matter. What we do is what God uses to do his work in the world. But God's work will continue because it hangs not on us, but on him. We see an example of this in our reading from Zephaniah this morning. The people of Judah had turned away from God who had judged them and brought wrath. That's what the first chunk of Zephaniah is about. But here Zephaniah is declaring that the wrath is ending. What we read this morning is actually the very end of the book. And here's what he says. He says things like, Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will rejoice with you over gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. There is always a remnant. There is always a group of people that God will use to be his people in the world because God is faithful and merciful. In fact, God is faithful in precisely the way that Israel's leaders were not. It's a regular theme throughout the Old Testament. Flawed leaders and a faithfully gracious God. And sometimes the people repent and sometimes God promises, I'm going to restore a remnant because of who I am. It has nothing to do with you. And in the New Testament, we're promised that even when we are faithless, Jesus is faithful. And it's Jesus' faithfulness through which the redemption and the renewal of the world is accomplished. So when we encounter the resurrected Christ and ask, what shall we do? We repent to step not into simply a personal relationship with Jesus, but to jump into another story, the grand narrative of God redeeming the world. And when the plot of our story seems bleak, and when our own lives are plagued with troubles, we can take comfort in the story that we are a part of, that God was and is and is to come. Today, April 26th, has been marked on my calendar for a few months. Bishop Hobby was supposed to be in town visiting All Souls, along with some other churches in the area that are also part of our diocese. And it was supposed to be the day when three of our students were confirmed. In the confirmation service, we read the Apostles' Creed, that summary of what Christians have believed for thousands of years. And then the confirmands declare publicly that this faith is theirs, jumping into this larger story. Of course, we recognize that the public declaration is just indicative of a fact that they've already joined into this story. But here's the question. We're a two sacraments kind of church, baptism and Eucharist. Baptism is the thing that united them to Christ theologically speaking. So why would confirmation, this lowercase s sacramental, even matter? What's the point? Well, here's my answer and my third point. The call to repent and be baptized isn't just a personal decision to step into a larger story. It also joins you to the peculiar people of the church here and now. It's a call to be part of the new Exodus people, 
You don't walk on this historical path by yourself. You walk on it with others. Again, Smith articulates Augustine's vision of the Christian life this way, that to be a Christian is to join a caravan, a tent city, a refugee camp on the run. Being a Christian is being aware of the dependence and tenuousness of this life. Confirmation matters because it's done in the church among the community. It's a moment when we welcome the confirmands into a new way of being part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, yes, but also to be part of our community in a new way. Isolated individual Christians only exist in thought experiments about desert islands. But for all of us who live with others, we are called to walk together. And you know, it's very easy to walk along with people in history who are already dead. All you need to do is read their books, incorporate the ideas you like, and discard the ones you don't. But you don't have to learn to love them as flawed human beings. Augustine was brilliant, but he might have been really obnoxious. He might have been an absolute chore to live with. I'm not sure I didn't live with the guy, but I'm sure he did have friends who had to work with him and be annoyed by him, people he frustrated, people that frustrated him. There were people that he had to repent to and receive repentance from. There was hard work involved. This is where this all hits home for me. Walking alongside people in the abstract won't do. Our church can't exist as a community in principle. It must do so in action. Our Lent started not only a bit too early, but like a persistent weed, its roots extend into Easter as well. We are a wounded church. And as the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. But the path forward for us is to walk together as best as we can. Someone pointed out to me this last week that in group therapy, you sit in a circle with a bunch of people in all sorts of places in their own grief journey, some in despair, some angry, some still in shock. And you have to allow everyone to be where they are, but still be together. You can't insist that everybody else processes their grief the same way. This is our call as a church, group therapy, to walk together in our grief and our disappointment. It's a tall order, especially since it's so easy to disengage from tough places and tough conversations when we don't even have to see each other. But the good news is that there is more to us than a shared interest. This isn't just a social club with a common cause. We are the ones who have repented, been baptized, and followed Jesus. Jesus who faced sin and death and rose again. And he's the one who gives us life. He is the one who gives us direction. When we don't love each other enough, we ask him to give us the love that he has for each other. When we are wounded, we look to him who bore our griefs and sorrows on the cross. And when we, like those on the road to Emmaus, are in despair because we had hoped for something different, and let's be honest, we all hoped for something different, in that moment, may we have the eyes to see that Jesus is walking alongside us, that if we're willing to turn to him and step into this story, he already has and continues to want to give us himself, he who was and is and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.